You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the conservative conscience. And welcome back to the conservative conscience. And it is Friday here at Conservative Review, powered by the Westwood One Podcast Network. Bar the doors. This is your one-stop shop of non-groupthink, your respite from the twilight zone, your relief from the political heroin and morphine that is doping up so many of my colleagues to focus on the wrong issues, the wrong strategies, and unfortunately often embrace the wrong ideas. This is true unvarnished truth and conservative constitutionalist talk. And it is Foreign Policy Friday today. You know, I wasn't planning on putting out another episode this week just because my voice is so shot. Um, from screaming my lungs off all day yesterday on on air, on radio, um, on the phone with friends, strategizing. I promise you this uh, episode won't be nearly as emotional as yesterday's was, but I know we've gotten a lot of good feedback on it. And actually, you're going to see how Foreign Policy Friday is going to tie back into our predicament domestically as conservatives dealing with false dichotomies, false choices, all resulting from the lack of an affirmative positive vision. And an affirmative positive vision is all what you need when it comes to foreign affairs, international relations, and putting America first. What I was prompted to to really just, you know, get back on air here and update you on is I, I always want to give the true conservative perspective on key things going on in the news or things that should be in the news or aren't. But one of the things that is in the news, I would argue a little bit too much, that was lost initially during the Kavanaugh fight last week on October 2nd, was this news of this so-called Saudi journalist, which we'll talk about in a minute, um, Jamal Khashoggi, who disappeared in the Saudi consulate in Turkey and... The, everyone in the media, Turkey, everyone else is claiming the Saudis killed the guy. And, you know, we are all up in arms because he had a green card in, 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 to, to live in America. And I was, I was just really shocked when I saw that Lindsey Graham commented after the Kavanaugh thing. He said, well, you know, a, a reporter asked, what are your priorities? And Ashley Parker of the New York Times reported that. He said, first Kavanaugh, then Saudi Arabia, and then criminal justice. And I was like, what? That, that's, that's random. What, what, what does he mean by Saudi Arabia? Now, now, now I realize it. Um, so you see his priorities. And then obviously criminal justice, we're going we're gonna to update you a little bit on later uh, to close the loop on yesterday's show. But for the Saudi Arabia part, I wanted to bring back our typical guest, our regular guest for Foreign Policy Friday, Jordan Schachtel to navigate the murky waters, the false dichotomies. Lots of things are true and false at the same time. What is the conservative perspective? What should what sort of political capital should we expend, if any, on behalf of Jamal Khashoggi and go after Saudi Arabia or not? Here is Jordan Schachtel, our national security. I was about to say advisor, but he's the conservative conscience advisor, national security correspondent for conservative review and CRTV. Hey, Jordan, how you doing? Doing great, Daniel. Good to be with you again. Yeah. Sorry for that long intro there. Um, <laughs> take it away here. I'm losing my voice anyway. So this happened October yeah. 2nd. What do we know so far about what just the facts of what happened before we analyze it? Yeah, so Jamal Khashoggi, uh, he was living in the U.S. for a while as a Saudi self-exile, worried about his critiques of the ruling monarchy. So he's living in the U.S., not a U.S. citizen, by the way. I don't even think he was a permanent resident. I think he was you know, trying to, to get paperwork. But this is not an American, uh, longtime Saudi uh, Islamist guy. He comes to Turkey to try to get um, marriage papers for him and his Turkish uh, fiance at the Saudi consulate. He walks in October 2nd, 
just 10 days ago now. And that's the last thing um, anyone's ever heard from him. Uh, there's a lot of theories uh, being promoted in the media, a lot of anonymous sources based in Turkey from the Turkish government, which is adamantly opposed to the Saudi monarchy because of their positions on mostly the Muslim Brotherhood and Hamas and other groups like that. Um, Turkey is pushing out a lot of Apo, claiming that the Saudis uh, killed this guy and dismembered his body with a bone saw, all these graphic details. Um, but right now, all we have, um, all we can confirm is that he, he walked into the Saudi embassy, and that's the last time anyone has seen him. Uh, there were stories in the Washington Post the other day, um, sourced to anonymous U.S. intel and Turkish intel officials that perhaps it was a botched rendition. Maybe they wanted to bring Mr. Khashoggi back to Saudi Arabia. Maybe he's there now. We're not really sure. Um, but the last thing we heard of him was he was walking into the embassy, and now there's all these theories about what would happen next. So, Jordan, you're essentially saying, first off, he wasn't an LPR. I think I made a mistake. He was not. So that, that makes a big difference in terms of you know our responsibility diplomatically. Um, we're not really American in any way, and we, we have no... Um, we have no responsibility for him. But before we get into the analysis part, just you know, just just factually, you're saying it's not even necessarily clear the Saudis did it. No, no, no. there is no evidence right now, other than I mean, it, I would just, it leads me to believe that the Saudis were involved in his disappearance for sure because you know he walked into their embassy, um, but we don't have any firm evidence of that at the moment. So right now we're going purely off of uh, anonymous reports and speculation. There's no, um, not even, you know, the Erdogan regime is going on the record in Turkey and saying that this is exactly how it happened. Everything is anonymously sourced and that's where we're at right now. But I think it's safe to say that, you know, we need answers um, because, you know, something happened to this guy and, uh, you know, he was last seen walking into the Saudi embassy. So eventually Saudi Arabia is going to have to, um, you know, put together what exactly happened here. So, um, gosh, wow. Um, this is, this is so bizarre that this has become a national security issue. Here's what bothers me. I understand that a lot of bad things happen at the hands of a lot of bad nations. And there's a lot of bad national governments or international governments around. But, you know, the first thing is, you know, what, what takes precedence and what's, what's the first concern for Americans that, you know, what is our concern for our national yeah. security? And first, before we get into the complicated things here, even assuming the Saudis did it, what we should do to the Saudis. And given that, you know, Turkey's the, the real problem here anyway, but what do we know about this guy, this journalist? Yeah, so we know that he's he hasn't been a journalist for quite some time, but you, you can start his profile. He was a member of the uh, Mujahideen, and he was hanging around with Osama bin Laden and Abdullah Azam, the founders of Al-Qaeda, in the 80s and even into the 90s. Um, there's pictures of Jamal Khashoggi strapped with RPGs, AK-47s. Um, the media is kind of trying to whitewash him as a mere journalist. But uh, people you know, who studied these groups could tell you that you don't get access to bin Laden and Azam unless you are one of them. Uh, that's not how you know, journalism works in, in the Middle East and in the Islamic world. You know, these guys only carried around um, people who they could trust and people who were members of their movement. So this guy was a radical. Um, he disavowed Osama bin Laden after he committed the 9-11 attacks, uh, because obviously, you know, you can't really go out in public if you're known as a friend of the guy and you're not willing to step away from him. So from there, he um, became tied into all of these Muslim Brotherhood uh, fronts and movements, and he's um, you know he's in exile now because he's criticized the monarchy in Saudi Arabia, and as you and I both know, the monarchy in Saudi Arabia is not you know a constitutionally protected government, so you are um, definitely putting yourself in harm's way as a, a Saudi if you're inside the country 
um, you know, calling for the monarchy to be deposed, which is what he was doing. So he had to flee. He had to go to the United States. Uh, he spent some time in Turkey, which is very close to the Muslim Brotherhood. And uh, Khashoggi has, for years, been writing columns about wanting to, um, you know, under the cover of democracy, he wanted to basically spread a series of Islamist revolts in Egypt and uh, in Saudi Arabia and throughout the Middle East. And he preferred, he was using the word democracy, but what he really preferred was a majoritarian uh, Islamist takeover of these countries, uh, certainly something that's not in the interest of the United States. Um, of course, this is an excusing, you know, what potential actions the Saudis made um, with regard to this guy, but he's not, he's not a reformer. He's not a journalist. He's an Islamist activist. And that has to be made very clear. Um, there's so much propaganda in the media right now claiming that this guy, oh, he was fighting for women to drive. He was doing this, doing that. But up until a couple of years ago, this is a guy who was calling on the, the Arab world to join Hamas in, its, uh, in, in a war of annihilation against Israel. He was calling specifically for Syrian uh, al-Qaeda groups to uh, overthrow Assad and for the Muslim world to empower those al-Qaeda groups. Uh, this guy was undoubtedly a radical, and a lot of people are spinning PR for him. But that doesn't, just because he was, you know, unfortunately put into the situation, and, uh, you know, no one's calling for an innocent person to be harmed for his words. Um, but we still need to tell the truth about this guy. Wow. So that that's a very different story. Um, you know, the narrative that they're that the media is putting out and both parties, virtue signalers from Lindsey Graham on down, um, and then Rand Paul's joining it for his reasons is kind of like a funny uh coalition of neocons, surprisingly, but then Rand and then the left and the media, um, for different reasons that we focus on outcome. We we don't focus on outcomes, we focus on players. Well, I don't like the Saudis, so this. Well, What's bothering me, and we've spoken about this for hours on end in a lot of these episodes, about the need to have a pro-American foreign policy that you don't define your foreign policy well by, well, the enemy of my enemy is necessarily my friend. Well, sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. You have to, it depends on the details. Um, the friend of my friend is my friend. Well, sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. You know, and it depends what they're doing. It depends on the theater. We don't own their stuff. We own what we want to do. We'll use them for what we want to do sometimes. We'll oppose them other times. You know, and it's it depends who they're fighting, who are the players. And you know, we often say this country did an atrocity. Well, okay, who do they do it to? What are the circumstances? And who's on the other side? So that's what we right. often miss. It, it, virtue signaling might work uh, domestically, but inter, you know, with international relations, you know, it doesn't replace policy. And strategic interest. And what concerns me here about what they're doing is this. You know me. I've been anti-Saudi since before 9-11. I hated their guts. But it's kind of like saying I hated the Japanese, you know, during Pearl Harbor. Well, Japan, the the, the Earth is the same country, but it's really a different country. It's, it's a different leadership. Now, I'm not going to say, and you're not going to say either, that Saudi Arabia before and after MBS is the equivalent of before the emperor and after the emperor in Japan. And and certainly, you know, I was the first one to support Rand Paul's effort. Initially, I felt very uncomfortable cozying up to the Saudis um, to the point that we're going to sell them all these weapons, continue to allow them to make so many so-called investments in America with their the education system. I'm very concerned about that. I wouldn't, despite the reforms and despite the fact that they're fighting our enemies, I wouldn't want to sleep without one eye open, you know, with them next, next in the bed next next to me. But with that yeah. said, I'm not going to go the other end and then oppose them. When at the end of the day, yes, the Saudis were probably behind 9/11, but this is a different Saudi government. And yesterday's Saudi Arabia is today's Turkey, Qatar, and Iran. They're the axis of evil. And the Muslim Brotherhood, this was a Muslim Brotherhood guy. Now, would we just take a Muslim Brotherhood activist in America and just hang him? No, but we, we can't control these countries from doing it. And is it worse strategically telling, you know, telling the Saudis, you know, screw off and empowering even worse elements, the Muslim bro in Turkey and Qatar, um, it j- just to virtue signal? That, that's what bothers me about this. 
Yeah, I think that the, the, one of the reasons why this has become such a big issue is one, because he had a Washington Post column, right? So this is supposed to give him, you know, this is supposed to give him status as an elite uh, public intellectual. Uh, he was basically given that Washington Post column because he went out there as a Saudi and said that, you know, this U.S.-Saudi relationship is bad, um, it, cozying up to Trump is bad, and the Saudis shouldn't cozy up to Trump. So, of course, the Washington Post, you know, one of the most anti-Trump newspapers in America, gave him the gig shortly after he wrote that piece in an Arab newspaper and became an exile. And they thought, you know, oh, this guy's great. He's uh you know, he's one of us, but he's always been a member of the Muslim Brotherhood. He's always been an Islamist. Uh, he's bad news. And, you know, it, it's there's so much foreign propaganda into this, um, you know, in this operation to, uh, you know, go after the Saudi monarchy. And I, I think a lot of the stuff you're seeing is purpose, not with finding answers about Jamal Khashoggi, but is shaking up, uh, you know, U.S. relations in the Middle East. And most of this propaganda is coming from Turkey. It's coming from Qatar. It's coming from, you know, Iran apologists. In, in the media and in politicians, uh, there's so much uh, stuff being thrown on the walls right now that, um, you know, we need to definitely, you know, take a step back and come to the reality that this is an Islamist who was potentially harmed in foreign land by a government um, that we need to balance our relationship with. And this should not be, you know, the cause for termination for our, you know, longstanding reform efforts in the Middle East, which, uh, you know, the Trump administration is doing, done a really good job empowering uh, reformers, people that want to get rid of the Islamists in um, the Islamist influence in their countries. So, you know, of course, MBS and, and the Saudi monarchy isn't, isn't a, you know, they're not running a constitutional republic over there. Um, and it, it's pretty clear that, you know, from time to time, uh, they're going to continue acting like the Saudis of old, unfortunately. Um, but, 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 George, that, but Jordan, they're <laughs> acting like the Saudis of old with the tactics, but not with the outcomes. They're doing it the exact opposite. Yeah. They're yeah, fighting they're, they're the not, Yeah, they're not ginning up anti-American rhetoric um, or anti-American activities. The, the Saudis are no longer in the business of you know financing uh, you know, back in the 90s and before 9-11, the Saudis were, you know, one of the chief funders of like these radical mosques in America. And now that the crown prince is specifically anti-Islamist, you know, they don't see a need to do any of that stuff anymore. So the only thing that concerns me, of course, is that, you know, if we're going to abandon this monarchy, which I would highly advise against, um, you know, the next, the next party up is, is the radical Islamists who would take over Saudi Arabia. And you would turn that place into basically uh, an Al-Qaeda state. It would be, it would be pre-9-11 or what, what you're seeing in Qatar right now, you know, with these uh, Al-Qaeda funding revolutionaries over there. It would just be such a horrible idea to, uh, you know, get rid of all the progress we've made, um, you know, with the UAE, with Egypt, with Saudi Arabia, because these foreign actors are basically trying to screw with us by highlighting uh, Khashoggi's case. That is what's so disingenuous about Lindsey Graham and all these people and certainly the left and the media. And I, th I think the administration, you, you and I both know deep down, you know, get what needs to be done here. But they're, you know, there's like a lynch mob and they're trying to show like, no, we're concerned. It's not that we're not concerned. I mean, it's that let, let's say you had some far flung country that's just irrelevant in a theater that's irrelevant where they're not fighting people that are even worse and actually do affect us, and they committed an atrocity. It's not really in America's interest to speak out, but you say for human rights, and I, I'm fine with doing it. But here, like you're saying, we're not balancing the, the collateral damage to our interests that, you know, anti-Islamist but pro-constitutional republic is not an option on the menu. It's not an option on yeah. the menu with Sisi in <laughs> Egypt. It's not an option on the menu with Saudi Arabia, they freaking come such a long way. And so many of the opponents are using Saudi Arabia of a different regime to conjure up this, like, you know, Americans hate the Saudis because it's just so many decades worth and, and, of that and, stuff. And by the way, these are the same people who don't ever condemn Islamist activities in the Middle East and Islamist groups in the Middle East. And now all of a sudden, Saudi <laughs> Arabia is their, 
you know, their favorite scapegoat. But and, it, and it's it's not a coincidence. It drives me nuts. I spoke about this yesterday on my show about the notion of fighting yesterday's battle today, just domestically. But it's the same thing with foreign policy. So at the time when we should have been aggressive as hell on the Saudis, none of these people stu- were st- stood in and were counted. I never, I never heard of them. I mean, I was yelling for years, we need to go after Saudi Arabia, long before the reforms and MBS came into power. Um, but no one cared. You know, oil was king. The Bushes kissed up to them beyond belief. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and no one cared. Now that they're actually coming along, and the new Saudi Arabia, so to speak, is Qatar and Turkey, and, and the Muslim Brotherhood, they're, they're the ones that are causing the problem, obviously along with the big daddy that's always been the problem since 79 Iran. So, look, I'm not going to go in the complete other direction and downright be pro-Saudi Arabia. I'm more like, well, I ain't giving them money, but if they're going to go butcher you know, the bad guys and kick out the Muslim Brotherhood for free, I'm not going to get in their way and undermine them. I mean, you've got to be stupid. It's a, it's, it's, a, it's a twofer because we're not pro-Saudi or pro-Qatar. We're pro-America. But my question to you is, isn't a lot of this stuff coming from the – could you explain to our audience a little bit how Qatar has so much PR influence down to the micro-level conservative organizations, think tanks, how, yeah. how they're so in tune with American politics? Yeah, so Qatar is obviously a tiny state, but extremely rich due to their um, you know energy resources that they just – uh, used, unfortunately, to finance terrorism. And the ruling uh, family in Gutter is explicitly endorsing um, Islamic terrorist groups in the Middle East, and they have um, engaged in a multi-million dollar PR campaign. They have $20 million worth of U.S. lobbyists that they pay off every year to you know, influence the debate. And they also uh, fund American think tanks. They have a multi-million dollar donation in every year to the Brookings Institution, which is you know the most prominent uh, liberal think tank, uh, foreign policy-wise, in, in the country. And they have several other institutions that they quietly fund. Um, you know, they've been heavily involved with uh, when when Grover Norquist was involved in foreign policy um, and his sketchy uh, connections. Gutter was funding that too. Uh, they fund a lot of r- radical mosques in the United States. Uh, they've basically become uh, what the Saudi regime used to be when they fu- when they were explicitly funding terrorist groups. Um, Gutter is wow. a, a, you know a total cancer on the on the public debate, and of course they have Al Jazeera too. Um, to continue to uh, propagandize and influence the American public, but you know they're they're fully they're fully on board the terrorist financing bus, and you know you can there's transparent reports to show it, um, but they've paid off enough people and propagandized enough in Washington D.C. to have a seat at the table with the Defense Department, with U.S. think tanks, with with major thinkers, and it's very unfortunate, but. You know, it's up to people like us to kind of battle against this propaganda because it, it, it's and, totally unacceptable. And it runs this doing. deep that you and I both know um, Jewish conservative kind of activists over the years that, I mean, some of them are even religious. And <laughs> overnight, they just started shilling for Hamas. Now, they don't say they're yeah, shilling I mean, for Hamas. They shill for Qatar. It, it's I mean, that's scary. Yeah, a, a former. Now that we're on that subject, a former cruise lobbyist, uh, Nick Muzin. Yep. He made millions of dollars um, as a foreign agent for the Qatari regime, and you know he put a list together of conservatives who he thought that Qatar could influence. So they worked their way down that list, and they paid off a lot of prominent conservatives to take trips there and you know say good things about the country. And you know, this is you're right. It's it's a bipartisan um, endeavor that the Qatari regime is engaging in it, and it's working, unfortunately. So, so what I'm seeing here is an interesting coalition. The left and the media views Trump as kind of close with Saudi Arabia. So again, they're just, they're idolatry, the tribalism, just whatever Trump is. So they'll side with Qatar and Turkey. Um, it's a two for one. A, you get to be against Trump. You're B, you're for the Muslim Brotherhood, which they're obviously like, and Hamas and all that stuff. And 
then, you know, even though they had nothing to say when, you know, Obama had plenty of arms deals with with the Saudis and certainly the Democrats never voted for that whenever Rand Paul had his um you know, initiatives to stop those deals. Democrats always voted against it. Now they vote for it because it's Trump. It's such a joke. You know, at least Rand himself was consistent on that issue. You know, um, so you have them. You have the neocons who generally would be on our side here and get it that Iran's the problem. And But then you have some that are bought out by Qatar and then others that are just into this virtue signaling of... Uh, yeah, well, that's, you yeah. know, that's one of the fundamental pillars of neoconservative ideology <laughs> is that everything comes down to someone's feelings and you know yeah. if they're if they're if they're caught up in their emotions it's going to change the way they think about policy and this is why you know we you and I have totally ideology because it led us down so many bad places in yeah. Iraq and Afghanistan and you know it was all about rebuilding the schools and empowering women in Afghanistan and purple you know fingers. building roads and and doing all this heavy lifting but at the same time sacrificing american lives to do so and that's you know the road that this leads down when you're when you're led by by emotions like oh my goodness the saudis may have may have killed this guy and the washington post says he's a great guy uh, how dare they oh he's not even an american who cares you know let's 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 tarnish the relationship we had with all our Arab partners because they may have engaged in, you know, this unsavory activity. And, you sure. know, that's why they're, they're just totally jumping the shark here. And, you know, it's such a typical <laughs> neoconservative, you know, uh, Wilsonian type move to totally just abandon everything because, you know, something got out of line somewhere along the way. Exactly. I mean, there's tens of thousands of people who die from atrocities with these civil wars and, and and you can't just focus on one person killed the media could make it like a big deal you can't change your foreign policy based on that and you know it's the same thing with syria that assad does an atrocity I, I, you know mainly targeting the islamist elements and then then the islamists do a, an atrocity and we focus on each one in a vacuum and you know sometimes you just got to there's nothing we can do and and that's the thing I think we should definitely be more tendentious to towards the Saudis than the Muslim Brotherhood and Qatar and Turkey. But I'm I'm not saying we, you know, we should treat them as an ally. My view of Saudi Arabia, and I'm curious, um, what your view on on my nuanced approach is, is is this that basically Saudi Arabia used to be a snake handler. They loved putting yeah. the snakes on other people's lawns, so they would throw the. Islamists on our lawn, having Al-Qaeda and bin Laden and these types empowered their agenda. They they used to fund the Hamas uh, suicide bombers in Israel. They would pay their stipends. I mean, they were part and parcel. But, you know, we, we have to realize, much like with World War II, and the world changes, and it changed dramatically with the Arab Spring, that, it, that it, Islamism wasn't mainly a tool of these regimes and pan-Arab strongmen they actually became this, you know, Muslim Brotherhood decentralized grassroots stuff that endangered them more than us even. And they were like, holy smokes, we're going to die. We need to, you know, it's not so much, you know, some of it's, you know, I think there is some reform-minded nature to MBS. A lot of it's just pragmatic. He, you know, they, they realize it's a problem for them. So as an American, I, I'm, I'm sitting by and watching it and saying, hmm, I know the Saudis are dead meat if they don't fight the Muslim Brotherhood. So I know I'm going to get that good stuff out of them for free. So my view is, I'm sure as heck not going to get in their way. I'll encourage them. I might sometimes even help when it doesn't cost us too much. But what I'm not going to do is totally give them billions in arms for free to do what they're doing in Yemen. Not that I agree with the virtue signaling over Yemen because they're fighting Iran. But on the other hand, the Iranian Houthis are you know if if Saudi if the Saudis win and, and wipe them out, you're not going to get MBS there. You're going to get Al Qaeda. So it's like there's no good you know good outcome. So my nuanced approach is that I strongly backed Rand's approach, and I think he even wrote me a letter at some point. Um, to initially, I didn't like that Trump. I like his approach, but I didn't like the actual arms deal. But once yeah. it went through. I think it's a problem to yank it back because of this. Yeah. And, and you know, that that's, it's such an important point in foreign policy and especially in the middle East, it, it's tough to identify people. It, it's easier to eliminate 
people who we can't get behind, like the Islamist groups. And trust me, U.S. administrations have made mistakes in the past, like the Obama administration with the Muslim Brotherhood made some terrible decisions in Egypt and, and elsewhere. And, you know, they, they were on the wrong side of the of so many issues there. But of course, this administration has done a good job ruling out Islamists entirely, never going to get behind them. And what's left in the Middle East is, you know, a conglomerate of people ranging from like full dictators like Assad, who's backed by Iran, who obviously we can't support, um, you know, to someone like al-Sisi and MBS, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, who have shortcomings for sure. And there's been accusations of, you know, dictatorial behavior. But there are people that the U.S. has had success working with, and we can hold them accountable um, for what they do and do not do. And we can hold them to a particular standard and help and use them to advance U.S. interests and U.S. prosperity throughout the world. So that's why, you know, it's so important to kind of stick with these reform movements. Um, MBS is not, you know, committing genocide somewhere uh, in, there's this one-off incident, um, you know, there's unfortunate reports about, you know, the jailing of dissidents that always happens in these, you know, Arab strongman regimes. And we're certainly not supporting stuff like that. Um, but reality tells us there's no perfect person to work with. Right. So, so we rule out the Islamists and we have to choose, you know, who in the Middle East we can get behind for these reform movements. And I think we've rightly identified, um, you know, the crown princes in the UAE and Saudi Arabia, and of course, the president of Egypt, El-Sisi, as people that are willing and able to advance these movements. Sure. And, and El-Sisi, I think, enjoys a little bit broader support, at least among Republican foreign policy people than than MBS does, especially now after this incident. But even Sisi, I mean, it was all this stuff with the jailing of the suspected Muslim Brotherhood people. He did the same thing without a trial. I mean, dude, what are you going to do yeah. about that? I mean, I, you know, as much as we don't like it, I mean, it's not just that there is no other option. It's like, what do you want from the guy? If if you have, yeah. if you don't have a civil society, it just it's just not going to work. And and um, it just it is so bizarre that we we just respond to everything. We're just well, he did this or he did well. What is it we want? What is it that's in our interest? Stop. See, my my my, my thing is that. For most of our life, as as a as a country in the modern era, and and Trump really campaigned on this. This was really his big thing, that we've become schleppers for everyone else, for both sides of every other war. When really, yeah. what it should be is we make everyone else do our bidding. We'll get what we want out of out of out of who we want. I mean, you know, where Saudi Arabia is 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 helpful, which is more often than not in this day and age with the new regime. We'll be behind them, but when I say behind them, I don't mean we have to give them a lot of money and you know start making deals with them and allowing them to continue funding garbage curriculum in in America. Although I, I don't think that's you know so much really MBS's um, priority at this point, but you know we we just have to keep this straight now. We're we're running out of time. I want to let you go. Um, just real quick, two other things in Turkey. Speaking of Turkey, I see the news that. This pastor, Andrew Brunson, who is incarcerated there indefinitely by the Turkish government, he's being released. Do you know what precipitated that? Yes. Yeah, so the uh, over the there's a couple of things. Of course, the disappearance of Jamal Khashoggi may have had something to do with it. And you know, the Turkish regime trying to you know, use it as an opportunity to curry favor with the Trump administration by releasing Pastor Brunson, who they've held for years without charging him with anything. Um, but finally today, they they charged him and sentenced him to basically being a foreign spy, which is you know, total nonsense. There's no evidence for that. Um, but they 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 gave him credit for all the years they locked him up as a hostage in prison, and they released him um, from his uh, house arrest. So he's now free to go, uh, at least according to the court. You know, the Turkish regime may stop him at the border. But the plan is to uh, bring him to Germany, I believe, um, kind of like debrief him at probably an American base there and then bring him back to the United States. Uh, so that's where we're at with Pastor Brunson. Um, and, you know, it, there's there's rumors that American officials went there last week. Um, 
and you know we're negotiating over the situation in Syria and how to coordinate over you know the jihadi stronghold in Idlib, Syria that uh, you know the Assad regime and the Iran and Hezbollah you know, they want to fight the Al Qaeda fighters there and Turkey has an interest there because it's right on their border. Um, so there's several elements in play there, and you know potentially we may have struck a deal with Turkey to uh, ensure their position there. Uh, that's what's being floated around in the media right now in exchange for Pastor Brunson's release. That's a possibility, uh, but we have no firm indications of, of what was given away, if anything, to uh, you know ensure his release. But it, but it does appear to have happened, which just totally underscores the need not to overreact to Saudi Arabia because any toughness on Saudi Arabia now will be Turkey's windfall. And, and Turkey is the much bigger problem. Again, talk about subversion. They are the ones doing what the Saudis did the decades before. They're funding the biggest Muslim Brotherhood mosques, you know, in Lantham, Maryland. And uh, I, I mean, that's, they, they are the problem on our soil yeah. um, with the Muslim Tur- Brotherhood. Turkey is, yeah. Turkey is working in lockstep with the Muslim Brotherhood, especially in the United States. I mean, it, the Council on American Islamic Relations care. These guys, every single time Erdogan comes into the United States, he holds private meetings with care officials and wow. Islamic Society of North America officials. These guys are so in bed with the Turkish um, government now that they're making it transparently obvious. And, you know, they, they provide a lot of the seed money for these, these mosques in the United States, the radical mosques, and especially these, these Islamist advocacy groups. They're very tied into Turkey now. No, exactly, exactly. Um, you know, just one other thing we spoke about earlier on the show this week about the vacancy at the UN ambassador post. Uh, so, you know, we dodged a, a bullet, and I, I do want to announce to the audience in case you guys have not seen this, um, because I did complain about it. So it's good to, you know, obviously praise, I don't know, praise, because I don't know what the circumstances, you'll let me know, but uh, the decision of Dina Powell to withdraw from consideration. Do you know what was behind that and who else is a, is a front runner now? Yes. Yeah, so Dina Powell, uh, who worked in the NSC under HR McMaster, um, definitely a, uh, a Bush 43 Republican. She was a gatekeeper to the Bush administration. She worked for Goldman Sachs. Uh, she works for Goldman Sachs now. And um, she apparently ruled herself out the other day, um, which is a win for conservatives because, uh, you know, her reported positions on climate change, all these international accords. uh, She had these ties to uh, Palestinian activists that were troubling. And I think it's good that she decided, according to the media, to stay at Goldman Sachs. And it would have been an issue because with you know all of those international connections, is that the person that's going to stick to China in a global forum where you have all these business interests connected to China? I don't think that she is the right person for that job anyway. So um, we're hearing a lot of rumors um, about who's up next. Uh, a lot of you know the president's supporters wanted Richard Grinnell, the ambassador to Germany, but the president kind of ruled him out uh, because he's doing a lot of good work on the Iran sanctions. Uh, now there's news that. Kay Bailey Hutchinson, the ambassador to NATO, might be a pick. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> no. Yeah. Oh, I haven't heard that name in a year. Oh, my, that, that's like oh, that's like Susan Collins all over again. Like, no. You know, I mean, she she makes, like, Heli Ayotte look, um, you know, charismatic. But, but I'm assuming she's not seriously being considered either. Yeah, well... The, the news about Bailey Hutchinson has been pretty well sourced, but she's no, no, I mean, apparently uh, on... Yeah, Kelly, Kelly oh, like Susan Collins. Yeah. Oh, Kelly Ayotte. Uh, she's been on some lists. And there's also um, CNN's reporting that Nancy Brinker, who founded the Susan G. Komen, uh, you know, Breast Cancer Foundation, uh, that she might be someone that might be the U.N. ambassador. So uh, I don't know what her issue, issues are in terms of her international experience. Um, there's also... You know, some other names being floated out there. Uh, John Bolton's probably not going to be the one because it would be a downgrade from his position as national security advisor, and he probably can't get confirmed by the Senate, too. So it would be tough to get, like, um, you know, a really staunch conservative voice because I think at this, you know, the way the Senate is right now, um, they would reject anyone with, you know, conservative credentials. So I think it's 
you know, a lot of it comes down to who the Trump administration thinks they can get um, confirmed in the Senate. And right now, the, the short list or the reported short list doesn't really have any big winners. So hopefully we can just kind of minimize uh, the U.S.'s presence in the U.N. And I think that's what, you know, Ambassador Haley did so successfully, at least during her tenure. She um, got a lot of things accomplished with defunding, you know, the Palestinian Refugee Agency, the UNH, the Human Rights Council, and, um, you know, really um, shrinking the U.S.'s importance um, in the U.N., which I think is important. Well, so so speaking of that, I just wanted to get your quick take on um, Congressman Thomas Massey. I was unaware of this. He tweeted at me yesterday, and we both kind of tweeted this out. Uh, he has sponsored H.R. 193 um, with seven other Republicans, Alex Mooney, Ted Yoho, uh, Raul Labrador, Matt Ga- Gates, uh, John Duncan of Tennessee, uh, Jason Smith of Missouri, Andy Biggs, our buddy from Arizona, and um, Walter Jones of North Carolina – that basically pulls out of the UN. Just curious your thoughts on that. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's an interesting prospect, but you know, the UN is the, is the ultimate swamp and there's so many people that would be opposed to it on both sides. And it, you know, I, I think, you know, as, as a pretty hardcore realist that there is really no role for the UN in the world. I mean, a perfect example of this is that, I don't know if you saw the other day, China arrested the head of Interpol which is supposed to be an important international policing agency. <laughs> and it just goes to show that international organizations without any real power structure are, are, are hopeless in trying to, you know, intervene in conflicts on the right side or, or support the right nation states, because, you know, there's just, there's just no role for this one world international body um, to really have any enforcement powers. Uh, what has the UN ever done to stop uh, conflicts. You know, they have these troops stationed in the Middle East, um, all over like the, the Lebanon Israel border. And they're basically like facilitating Hezbollah's movement. Uh, so they're just entirely useless. They did nothing to stop the Rwandan genocide. I, I think the UN, the UN is like too big to fail at this point. So Massey's bill will probably only get maybe a dozen co-sponsors max, or maybe a couple of voices in the Senate, like Rand Paul, and uh, Mike Lee that will support it. But I think where the UN, unfortunately, is is here to stay for a while. Yeah. And, and, and until then, I mean, he's doing a good job, Trump, that is, of um, discrediting it and, you know, actually policing it properly. But, you know, again, I'm just concerned because of the dearth of talent we're going to have. Um, we're going to slide backwards because personnel does matter given that this administration is decentralized on the other hand i guess you do have bolton and pompeo that will keep everyone in line but um you know this is like what trump said in his speech before the un that you know a strong america and strong sovereign nation states has been what's always promoted peace and prosperity much more than the un so it is it's an interesting idea to strive for that you know my my goal would be to create a different un but not the problem with the UN is is that it was created in the same mold as the League of Nations that was rightfully rejected by Henry Cabot Lodge and the Republican Congress at the time. All their arguments apply to the UN. I would say it, it's nothing about sovereignty. Like we always say, it's the opposite. Have a pact where you each respect right. each other's sovereignty uh, for mutual. Just you know, uh, the, the entire goal would be to promote <laughs> sovereignty. Yeah, it would be nice to have a UN which was which had a membership roster. You had to meet a criteria of you know being at least respecting individual rights um, at, at a bare minimum, and we could rule out basically half the world. But I think a, a coalition of of free, maybe not even you know fully free nations, because that's a high standard to meet. But nations that um, you know protect the right the rights of their citizen citizens and you know, ensure some type of democratic process and, and their individual rights. I think that would be a much more successful UN instead of pretending like, you know, a nation like China or North or, or Russia, uh, you know, can have this massive power at the Security Council. It's so ridiculous that these totalitarian states are basically running the show at the UN. So, 
you know, to me, the UN is a total failure. And, you know, the, the more we can mitigate its role in the world, the better it will be for U.S. interests and, you know, peace and prosperity worldwide. Wow. Well, th- there you have it. It's a uh, pretty pretty astounding that we now have Lindsey Graham and Rand Paul actually on the same side of a foreign policy uh, fight. And, you know, I just, this is Lindsey Graham. I mean, you know, he can't even (laughs) wait a day to stop with stupidity. I mean, this is what we're going to bleed for. This is, you know, they're working on legislation. They want to hold hearings if they were actually in session because they just left because they have nothing better to do, but allow Democrats to have more time to campaign and defend all their vulnerable seats in the Senate. But, it's like, yeah, I mean, really, the Muslim Brotherhood, I mean, that's the hill for us to die on. I mean, and, and that's that's the problem. And, and again, I'll just say we got to have a vision. What do we want for America? And once you have that vision, it's not so hard to have a cognitive dissonance and nuanced approach to multiple other players. I'll deal with each one in a way that benefits America, just like on domestic policy as conservatives we will deal with people in a way that benefits us when you have Kane West meeting with Trump and the left attacks Kane West for meeting with Trump. But in fact, he's meeting with Trump to push a far left crime policy. Well, just because the left is attacking Kane, it doesn't mean I'm going to only defend Kane and that not focus on the problem that he's getting Trump to support a bad policy. Again, the, the, the enemy of my enemy is not my friend um, and sometimes makes it worse because we have to have views like, you know, our mission in life is not to combat the left-wing media. Our mission in life is Micah 6-8. Our mission in life is to do justice. It's to do what's right. It, it's, it's to, you know, put America first as it relates to foreign policy, obviously, and domestic policy um, and, you know, conservatism, constitutionalism, Whatever helps that will promote that. What hinders it will oppose it. The liberal media obviously opposes us, so we oppose them, but that's not an end to itself. And if the liberal media attacks Lindsey Graham or Susan Collins or Kane West, dude, I ain't going to go to bat for them, just like I ain't going to go to bat for Turkey and the Muslim Brotherhood. Yep. All right. Good summary. Well, anyway, um, great as always to hear from you at Jordan Shackdale to follow you on Twitter. Um, we'll link to that in our notes and we'll see you next week. Have a great weekend. Anyway, that was Jordan Shackdale, our national security correspondent. And, uh, Jordan's a great guy. I mean, really thoughtful, always love having conversations with him, just, you know, spitballing ideas. And, you know, I, I want to bring on, bring him on, not just for the purpose of discussing, this issue, which I felt was important, but but see the tie-in from what we're talking about broadly the last couple of weeks. Having a vision, what is it we believe in? Just like in foreign policy, you have to drive down that lane with a focus. This is what we want for America. There's a lot of murky, evil stuff going on in the world. And a lot of things are evil at the same time. A lot of things are right at the same time. And you just got to determine what is in our interest. And as conservatives, we really need to take that approach with party politics. What is in our interests? What is in our interests? Is it in our interest to defend and champion people that are undermining our policies? You know, if you want to go and spend 50% of your time, as Tucker Carlson, Laura Ingram on Fox News saying, um, you know, it was a great moment, even though Kane West is still a liberal Hollywood swampster and he's not champion, championing our ideas. But it was still useful nonetheless with so much acrimony and, and civil war in this country that a guy who, despite being a liberal, you know, went in and tried to l- lighten up the moment, put on a MAGA hat. And, you know, look at the liberals attacking him. I would I think from a civility standpoint, there's a point to be made there. Although, again, I would question how much of it is that versus he just loves access to power and he's not, you know, dogmatic enough about his liberal views that he's going to slam the door shut if Trump uh, opens up the door to him. But you got to talk about what he was pushing. Which is a jailbreak that's just disgusting. You know. 
I, I want to, before we go, I, I just want to circle back and I wasn't planning on delving into this, but I think you need to know it. Maybe I'll write this up as an article. I have a very important article out with my interview with Devin Lombardi, as I spoke about yesterday, whose brother was killed, murdered by this juvenile at the time who's now eligible to possibly get released. And I wanted to write another piece on this racial disparity talking point. The notion that Trump just parroted Kane West and Jared Kushner and all the people that are just in his ears that, oh, we're destroying the black community by incarcerating too many people. Let me read to you what Donald Trump used to say before he was taken over by this. This was tweets from 2013. Now, there, there's a he said this stuff a million times, and uh, it, there might even be stronger quotes, but you know, I just don't have the time to research it. I'm just reading a series of four tweets. Sadly, the overwhelming amount of violent crime in our major cities is committed by blacks and Hispanics. A tough subject must be discussed. When it comes to violent crime, and if we are going to solve the problem, we must stop being so politically correct, must tell it like it is. Get smart on knockout assaults and crime. We have to be slight, slightly more vicious and violent than the assaulter, and crime would end fast. Likewise, the primary victims of violent crimes are in the African-American and Hispanic communities. Those people want law and order now. Okay? So, you know, some people are telling me, Daniel, don't shove this Jeff Sessions law and order crap. I don't want any of that. Well, forget about Jeff Sessions. I mean, he can't light a candle to Donald Trump himself, what he used to say. This is what Donald used to say. So this is how powerful and corrupting this jailbreak movement is. It's, um, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty astounding. It's pretty astounding. Really, really is. I, I just can't believe our people don't care. But that's the point. Trump recognized the truth of the matter. He absolutely recognized the truth of the matter. And now he's flipping back the other way. I mean, this is the garbage that Hillary Clinton said. What do, what, what do you think Hillary Clinton said? This exact talking point that Donald Trump is saying, that the system is very unfair to blacks. That's what he said yesterday. I mean, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? During the second debate, presidential debate in 2016, Hillary Clinton said, it's just a fact that if you're a young African-American man and you do the same thing as a young white man, you are most likely to be arrested, charged, convicted, and incarcerated. There's systemic racism in our criminal justice system. And the reality is anyone who knows the facts on the ground, blacks commit such a disproportionate amount of violent crime that, well, yeah, obviously there's, you know, the, the blacks are 13% of the population and they comprise more than 13% of the prison population. I forgot how much it is. It's kind of complicated because it's federal and there's each state. I don't have it in front of me. But whatever that number is, it is way below the relative share of crime that they commit. There's an under-incarceration problem across the board, but particularly among blacks because they commit a disproportionate amount of the violent crime. You, you, you got to treat the cause, not the symptom, the illness, not the symptom. Too many of them in jail. Well, you know, it's like, I waited too long to make a left turn on a busy street. I'm going anyway. Well, that might be a problem and you got to see how, to, how you want to get to work, but you, you, you just can't do that. You just can't let people out of jail like that. You can't do that. Here's the reality. 2017, we have brand new data now. Recently came out, FBI's annual uniform crime reporting. There were 1,272 more blacks killed by homicide than whites. Okay? so. 
there were 7,851 blacks killed, 6,579 whites killed. So the same way blacks are, you know, overwhelmingly the offenders, but they're also overwhelmingly the victims. And the important thing to remember is, even though the black crime rates, violent crime rates, are appallingly high and much higher than for any other group, it's still only relative. It's relative to the crime of other groups. But relative to the size of the number of African Americans in this country, the overwhelming number of African Americans living in urban areas are hardworking, law-abiding citizens. It is those people who you're going to hurt the most. By like, it's not like there's black and whites. Well, there's it's there's victims and criminals. Now there's more black criminals than white criminals, proportional to their size of the population. But there's more law-abiding people than criminals. So I mean, you're hurting every everyone, and particularly blacks. That that's the big lie about this issue. I mean, again, these numbers are staggering. They comprise 13% of the population, but they make up 54% of both the homicide offenders and homicide victims. I, I, I want you to let that seep in. Blacks comprise 13, 13% of the population, but there were more black murderers than white murderers in absolute numbers. And, and that, that, that has gotten worse in recent years. Last couple of years. In other words, the numbers used to be at parity, roughly the same number of whites and blacks, homicide victims, homicide offenders. It was about even, which was that in itself is staggering given they're only 30% of the population. But now it's actually been sizably more. There's been 12, 13, 1400 more um, blacks killed by homicide than whites every single year, last three, four years. And, and it's obvious why, because you know, because of the criminal justice deform measures in the state level, particularly the war on cops in places like Baltimore, Detroit, and Chicago, it's going to disproportionately hurt blacks. But it's not just it's just it's not just um, it's not just homicide, not just homicide. And by the way, when you hone down on black on black homicide. 88.4% of blacks killed by homicide, almost 8,000 people a year, 88.4% of them were at the hands of a black offender. But again, this is just for murder. In 2012, that's so what about robbery, assault, and rape? So that data, interestingly enough, used to be broken down by race. But the FBI stopped doing it for obvious reasons. So in 2012 is the last year we have data for that. Um, African-Americans accounted for 32.9% of those arrested for rape, 55% of robbery, and 34.1% of aggravated assault. Again, only 13% of the population. That's astounding. It, it's terrible. It's a tragedy. But you want to look at the raw numbers. They say too many blacks are in jail. There, there's too few relative to the crime. There's too few of everyone. Because remember, as I've said many times, more than half of violent crime goes uncleared, according to the FBI. So we don't even get everyone, in, or, or if we get them, convict them. Just in one year. This is 2017 data. It, it, it compounds itself you look at a generation a 20-year period it's astounding how many people would be in jail if you locked them up and i didn't even get to drug charges yet this is just murder rape assault and armed robbery 6,013 murder cases went uncleared 79,310 rape cases went uncleared 206,091 robbery cases went uncleared, and 349,190 aggravated assault cases were uncleared in 2017, according to the FBI. Thus, even if we put drug traffickers aside, let them all go, didn't arrest any, and just focused on those four categories, if we actually successfully convicted every murderer and certainly every other violent offender, there would be hundreds of thousands of more people in prison. And you, no, no one could deny that they're not Martha Stewart insider trading. This is violent crime. 
And therefore, by definition, so many more would be black, but they're not because our system goes out of the way to actually try to not incarcerate them because of the allegations. But it's worse than that. The jailbreak movements have disproportionately been benefiting them, even though they are still committing a disproportionate amount of crime more so than ever. In 2016, Keith Humphreys, a noted psychiatry psychiatry professor at Stanford University, wrote a series of articles in the Washington Post. And, And his thesis was very important. He said, quote, very, very important. That the widespread belief that black incarceration gets worse every year is not only profoundly wrong, it may also be crushing to the spirit of the many reformers who are striving to create a safer, more equitable, and freer society. This guy's not a conservative. He just like, dude, you're not helping anyone by lying about the data. And his point was that, you know, the all again, Hillary talked about young, young blacks. But according to BJS, Bureau of Justice Statistics, incarcerations of 18 to 19-year-olds have actually declined by 40% from 2003 to 2013. And I would imagine if you're able to dig up more recent data, that, that's accelerated. Which young adults are experiencing the sharpest decline? Humphreys writes that the, the imprisonment rate for black females has dropped by a whopping 47%. Since 2000, and 22% among black males. It's now at a 20-year low. Meanwhile, the rate among white women has increased by 56%. I'm not 100% sure why. But actually, if you want to know where the, the incarceration is increasing, it's among whites. It, it's just such a lie. I mean, it, it just is what it is. But you're not going to hear this anywhere else. But this is my broader point, whether it's Saudi Arabia versus the Muslim Brotherhood, whether it's the Houthis versus Al-Qaeda, whether it's Assad versus, versus ISIS, and whether it's the liberal media versus a Hollywood figure who's cozying up to Trump personally but screwing us policy-wise, or the liberal media versus Lindsey Graham and Mitch McConnell and Susan Collins. We have no dog in that fight. What is our vision? Before we go, first off, I need you to to support our sponsors. You know, a lot of people ask me, how in the world do I keep track of so many policy issues? The answer is I don't keep track of as many as I want to. I wish I had something like Bamboo HR, which is the best HR software, according to PCs Magazine, to monitor all my issues. Maybe someday someone will invent that. But for now, if you, do, if you don't do politics for a living, but you actually have a real job, a small business selling a vital product or services country, aren't you sick of the 50 million hats you have to wear in addition to doing what you love? The paperwork, the personnel, the personnel management, the flows, the, and then you know we're not even getting into the government regulations and the paperwork on that. Bamboo HR manages all your employee data. It automates it in a very beautifully set up interface that I'm I'm looking at right now on my subscription. It frees you to focus on people, not processes and paperwork. So you could put down all those hats you don't like to wear and you do the things you love. The transition is very easy, um, very easy to use. And by the way, there's no long-term contracts or commitments. So it's as is. Here's what I suggest. Go to bamboohr.com slash Daniel. You got to do that. bamboohr.com slash Daniel to get the extended free trial. They offer everyone a seven-day free trial. You're going to get the extended 14-day free trial. Um, no, no, Nothing will be charged to your credit card for the special offer. It's exclusive to the conservative conscience listeners. bamboohr.com slash Daniel. Limited offer only for our listeners bamboohr.com forward slash Daniel, the best HR software in the business so you could have the peace of mind of making business your business and keeping the clutter and paperwork to Bamboo HR. I want to end with the following thought 
that we'll develop further next week to tie everything together. You know, everyone is telling us, shut up. I don't want to hear about anything else other than voting GOP on November 6th. Whoever that GOP is, as if there's no difference between a Dave Bratt and an MS-13 Republican like Jeff Denham. And let, let me give you a point that I, I don't think I've articulated clearly, but it is very important to develop this thought. I actually believe there is one very important purpose to voting GOP no matter what, even if they're bad Republicans versus the Democrat in the general election. I'm going to give you a theory. But I will tell you, ironically, it's the one thing that those who are purveying this argument of vote GOP at all costs are missing and are blocking us from doing. And that is pressure. The one purpose of voting GOP is if you vote GOP with the attitude that I will coalesce a movement the day they get elected or reelected to pressure them on the issues, flood their offices with, not violence, but calls, and start threatening primary challenges. Because I would say the one difference between, like, you know, I think about Heidi Heidkamp in North Dakota, the Democrat, likely to be defeated by Kevin Kramer, the congressman, who is literally among the most liberal Republicans in the House. He has like a 36 score or something. The guy's a puke. Don't, don't, man, we're winning North Dakota. You're winning it with a guy that doesn't share our values. But like, Daniel, come on, isn't he going to be better than Heidi Heidkamp? Here's the deal. If you've, there is one difference that Heidi Heidkamp couldn't give a damn what conservatives in North Dakota think. You, you could t- reason with them all you want. They, you know, they're not going to listen to you. If you have someone with an R next to their name, they are potentially, and the keyword is potentially, susceptible to pressure because of the tribalism. And, you know, they're automatically, there's so many voters out of reach. They do need conservative voters. They need the base. But if you allow, if you're like, please, Rhino, save me. Please defeat the Democrat. Anything you want. I won't challenge you. You're awesome. Well, gee, then, then there's no purpose to voting for them, ironically, because you're not going to get anything out of them. But if you vote for them with like, dude, you're on a short leash. I'll vote for you, but the minute the election's over, I'm going to beat the hell out of you. Then there's some use to it because then they might move over. And if they don't, you lay the markers down and you litigate the case against them enough among the electorate, you could have a primary challenge. That's a point that's lost on so many of our colleagues here. You don't have to have this false debate over how dare you not vote GOP? Oh, well, there's no point in the GOP. They're, they're a horrible party. Well, they're better than Democrats. You don't allow Democrats. Well, there's a third option. You could vote for them with a short leash, but no one's doing that. They're praising them to the point that we can't even pressure them. I don't want to get too hyped up already you know, after yesterday. But anyway, hope you enjoyed our segment with Jordan Shackdale. Have a great weekend. I'm certainly going to appreciate the weekend myself. I need a rest. God bless you. Until next week. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience.